morning, everyone. Junior Church, you are dismissed to walk. One of the worst things about traveling, about um, vacations, is luggage. It's all that baggage. Um, this summer, the kids went to CIY, and Dustin, you told them they could bring one bag, right? One bag. And there was a kid in our youth group who brought two bags. Not just two bags, but one nice-sized bag, and then one that was like this tall. But I'm not going to say this kid right here, sitting right here, his name, Brendan. Um, full of board games and things to do in the dorm room, which was fun. They had limited space in the van, and so he made sure to take up even more. How many of you, when you're going on a trip, you have to go through and tell the kids or the husband or someone, we're not packing that much. We can't fit that much baggage, that much luggage into the car. If you're going, if you're flying, they give you extra fees if you take more baggage or if it weighs more than normal. Uh, One church we were at, they would go down to um, Panama for mission trips. And they would take as much luggage as possible because they fill it with things to leave with uh, the citizens down there. One was full of just nothing but um, tennis balls because those kids didn't have toys like that. And so there was a suitcase filled to the brim with tennis balls, and it got flagged. They wanted to know, what are you doing with all these tennis balls? What is inside them? And they had to go through security and make sure... Baggage things cause a lot of problems. They can cause, if it's not done right, if it's not packed properly, if it's got too many board games in it, if whatever it is, baggage can cause a lot of problems. It's one thing to struggle with excess baggage physically. Um, I, I know when we were unloading the CIY van, it took two people to haul Brendan's bag out because it was so heavy. Often we don't realize how heavy things are until you have to pack it in the car or carry it onto the the airplane. Excess baggage creates problems. This year we're going through the book of Acts, and our theme is destination. The book of Acts, written by Luke, who is a Gentile physician, tells us about the first 30 years of development of Christianity. About 20 years into this, 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, a problem develops with this church. We're going to read about this problem and the solution in Acts chapter 15. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 15. And the problem is, even though the solution has been there for all of us to see for some 2,000 years, we in the church still have a tendency to carry excess baggage that so often makes the Christian life unnecessarily difficult for us in the church and unnecessarily resistible. They don't want to come to those outside of the church. This excess baggage makes it hard for us to live the faith and for others to accept it. So here's what happened in Acts 15. The earliest church was almost entirely Jewish in the makeup. After all, Jesus was the Messiah, the king of the Jews. All of his early followers were Jews. After the resurrection, the church was either Jewish by birth or they were converted into Judaism. Twelve years after the resurrection, that began to change. 
If you remember in our study, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius' household, the big Greek Gentile convert. He goes there and he meets with them and, and leads him into faith. Back in Jerusalem at that time, a persecution underway from one guy that we'll get into. And all these believers flee, but as they left, they kept preaching the gospel. Many people started listening, including Gentiles, and, and they became believers. Now, just to make sure we all understand, in Old Testament times, and even when we're reading in the New Testament, there are two classifications of people, a Jew and everybody else. So a Gentile is really somebody who's not a Jew. That's all it is. So it's probably really safe to say we're all Gentiles. Unless there's someone in here that I don't know is Jewish, we're all Gentiles. That's what that means. And in this time, a, a growing number of non-Jewish followers of Jesus started growing in the faith, and it started causing some problems. Gentiles came from the history and background of paganism. They didn't follow the Jewish scriptures. And so when this happens, uh, they send Barnabas out to go check things, and this is still a couple chapters ago, and see what was happening. And he took with him a guy named Saul of Tarsus, a recent convert, Pharisee. When Saul arrives, they preach for a whole year. A whole lot of Gentiles place their faith in Jesus and join the church. Saul, in case you didn't know, and Paul are the same person. Saul, his Jewish name. Paul, his Roman or Gentile name. Saul, the once persecutor of the Christian faith, becomes Paul the Apostle, the great proclaimer of the Christian faith. And this is very important. This is important. There is no way to explain the conversion of Saul into faith apart from the resurrection of Christ. He didn't come to Christ. He didn't come to faith because he read it in the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't come to faith because he was listening to a Christian message, although the message of Christ wasn't wrong. And no one in the early church came to faith because the Bible says so. Gee, this is going to sound very weird. But nobody in the beginning came to faith because the Bible said so, because the Bible hadn't been brought together yet. It's not about a message in the book. It was an event that witnesses testified about. It was a faith that people actually spoke about and shared that with other people. I read of a church in Texas that was doing pretty well, but um, the elders came and asked the minister to leave because he had caused a ruffle. He'd, he'd upset some people. The cr preacher kept doing his work, kept preaching and teaching, but after relentlessly being told he needed to resign, he finally did and left the church and started looking for another place to go. After he resigned, the church majority, they were upset. They called a meeting, had the elders. They wanted to know what's going on. Why is their minister suddenly gone? And it came to find out that one person in the church who was a wealthy giver, generous giver, was upset. He didn't like the preacher, and so he pushed the elders to get rid of him. And the church people were furious. And they started complaining to the elders. And so the elders went back to that minister. The church really wants you back. Would you come back? And he said, no. These elders weren't leading. They were letting the baggage of this one guy's 
popularity of his finances lead them, and this minister left. All this because of a dispute in the church. That same minister went to another church in South Dakota, and guess what he did there? He upset a generous giver, and the elders asked him to leave there. And so he went back to a church in Texas, and he told him up front, if you're a generous giver and you think you can buy your way into this church, I'm not going to stay here, apparently, because I'm going to upset you. He's been there for 15 years now, and the church is growing. But why did all that happen? Because of disputes in the church. All because people wouldn't learn to work together. They wanted their way. Isn't there a famous song, I Want It? My way. Yeah, don't we want that, especially in America? Instead of doing it our way, we need to think about the good of the whole church, about what God wants. Disputes in the church are basically people bringing in baggage. And it's not new. It's been happening for a long time. So let's go to Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. These men from Judea are not part of this local church. They come here specifically to teach this message. They're not sent to Antioch by the church. And in fact, if you read in Galatians, these are not even Christians. They are just Jewish people. Look how Paul describes this same spot, same story in Galatians 2.4. Even that question came up only because some so-called believers, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneak in to spy on us, take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They want to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. These Jews came to try and pervert the gospel, the freedom that people can actually have in Christ. Their message was this, in order to be a Christian, you have to convert, you have to submit to the rules and regulations of our books, which is what we call the Old Testament. You have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. For them, one of the signs was the act of circumcision, the outward sign of the Jewish law, which was part of joining into the promises and heritage of the Jewish lifestyle. Today, anyone who argues for a ceremonial law of any sort of being necessary to salvation, if somebody comes in and say, ah, you, you need to believe in Christ, and then you have to do these things, is giving you a false message. What really happening there is what is called legalism. Legalism. They're saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. What do these words sound like? It sounds like somebody thought they had all the answers. It's like someone saying, unless you drive a Ford product, you cannot be an American. How? I heard somebody say that's true. We have a couple true blue American citizens here. Awesome. So unless you drive a Ford, you're not an American. How many un-Americans do we have in here? My son drives a Ford, but I, I don't. Okay. Legalism always twists something that we prefer, we like, we are comfortable. And legalism always divides people. 
Judaism divides people, but the grace of Christ brings us together. What is legalism? Basically, legalism is saying, I am right, you need to listen to me and do things my way. Because I'm right, I'm smarter, I'm holier, I'm more knowledgeable, I'm more experienced, I am what you need to be like. There are some people who always seem to think they have all the right answers and ideas and believe that everyone should be with them. And really, a legalistic mindset thinks that God is on their side. Because they're so much better, even God would choose to side with them. Instead of realizing, no, we need to change our side, get rid of it, and go to God's side. I've seen, there are always going to be those types. I've seen many preachers like that. I've seen many church leaders like that. I've encountered so much legalism. Hear me on this. The truth is, none of us have all the right answers. None of us know everything. We don't know everything. So we need to be cautious in how we tell people what they need to do in order to live righteously. Only our true authority in life is the Word of God. Period. If it's in Scripture, as we've said here, we do it. If it's not in Scripture, we have freedom in that. And so we are going to follow here exactly what we see the scriptures telling us. And anything else is up for opinions. The word of God is only the thing we're going to follow. The spirit of legalism, which we see in Acts 15, is still with us today. And I will say at times I think is even worse than in the times that Paul wrote this, or that Luke wrote this. No church has all the right answers. Because we don't know everything. We don't have all the right answers. To say that we're right and everybody else is wrong, to say that we're right and they all are going to hell, puts me in a judgmental seat. I can say, God says this, and if you don't follow this, then you are choosing to go to hell. That is a proclamation of what Jesus, what God's word actually says. It's not me saying it. But if I say, hey, if you don't show up at this time and do this thing, then you're not a real Christian. That's, that's legalism. Whenever we allow our personal opinions to become law, that's legalism. And legalism always, always is divisive, divides. It's always divisive. It divides people. It divides churches. Anytime we think our opinion is the same as God's law, we are legalists. We are in trouble. Um, shortly after my grandma, um, Goff, died, my grandpa, who I love this guy, he's 80, I think he's 89, grew up in the faith. I mean, he's, I just love this guy. I mean, I look up to him so much, but he had a problem. Grandma died with cancer. It really took her in a bad way. I just, it was bad. Shortly, about a year and a half after, Grandpa came to me and he says, Donnie, I have to apologize. I have legalism and it's a cancer in my faith. For him to associate that is huge. He apologized. He repented about his legalistic ways and he says, we just need to figure out what scripture says only. 
and go on that. Because he'd been taught by certain things. Well, this is what you have to do as a Christian. This is what you have to say. This is what you have to wear. This is where you... And he says, it's not in Scripture. And so, that was about 15 years ago. I saw this. This man fall in love with faith again. I saw him as he was turning 80 on fire for Christ, loving people, and actually bringing more people to Christ in his little ways that he was doing it than the whole church combined. All because he let go of legalism. When we demonstrate grace and graciousness towards others, giving them the benefit of the doubt, we start building unity instead of separation. First Timothy 1 says, As I urged you when I um, went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to be devoted or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. The goal of God's command is, what is it? Love. It's not being legalistic. It's not laying down the law to people. God has already laid down his law. And we must live by his greatest law, which is love. I've seen a church almost split because they want to get rid of Sunday school. The leaders are saying that Sunday school was dying in numbers, but their small group was going like crazy all over the week. And the church said, well, we're going to cancel our Sunday morning stuff and open a second service. We're not going to have Sunday school. And the church started dividing on that. And telling elders said, show me in the Bible where it says Sunday school. Show me where you have to meet at 9 o'clock or whatever time for this. Well, it's not in there. You can look all you want. It's not in there. The, the people met together daily for certain things. How often? Daily, not a Sunday morning only. And this church leader said, look, we're going to take Scripture as serious. We're going to take it as a command, and we're going to do this, and if you don't like it, we're sorry. But we are going to answer to God, not you. We need to love, and we need to make sure that's our highest thing. Let's go to verse 2. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. They were debating in a violent way almost. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. This whole debacle where somebody came in and says, you're not a true Christian unless you follow this, created such a problem in this Gentile church. And instead of trying to answer it on their own, they decided to get together and send a delegation group to the apostles, the elders who are at that local church there, including Jesus' brother, James. They sent for help there. They sent people to go who are more mature, who are more knowledgeable in the faith. Paul and Barnabas, it says, were appointed along with some other believers to go up there and ask them this question. Why would they go there? Isn't Paul and Barnabas sent out to go teach and, and plant churches? Why are they going back to Jerusalem? 
the answer is because God ordained those leaders in that church. And you don't just solve problems of the church by talking to everybody about them. I've been at a church and it was a, there was a phrase. You can tell a phone, you can tell a friend, but if you tell a, and it was a church member, you've told them all. Because they just talked. They just shared it with everybody. I've heard churches get rid of their prayer chain phone call systems. You know why? Because a lot of times, oh, did you hear? We've got to pray for this lady's, oh, bless her heart. Do you know what she did? And then it just turned into gossip and gossip. We have a good propensity for saying, I'm telling you this as a prayer request. And it's not. We have a lot of people who just talk things through and, and then everybody knows all the problems and yet we're not solving anything. God has a chain of authority in the home and in the church, which we should follow. This shows when we have these baggages, it causes dispute and troubles. These baggages should be handled by church leaders. Now, I'm not talking about the little problems you're having with your families. I'm not talking about whether you're going to work here. I'm talking about divisive problems within the church. We are to allow the church leaders to handle. And who are the authoritative church leaders? Elders. Okay? The elders. They are the ones who God has appointed, God has called into becoming an elder. And it's not about getting enough votes. It's about fulfilling the calling that God has placed on them according to Scripture and obediently following all that God says in Scripture. Troubles should be handled by the church leaders. Why? Because God has ordained them. God has called them into this position. Let's see what happens when they go to the, the apostles and elders. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of Pharisees stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Here's where things get a little interesting and then difficult. And please try to stay with me here as I say this, because we have a tendency in many churches today, it's going to be the same issue that every other church faces that we see here. The church in Acts 15 came to the right conclusion. They did the right thing in the end. The problem they addressed still prevails in so many churches today. It's the problem of excess and unnecessary baggage that others placed on them. Look who shows up in verse 5. It says, along with some Pharisees. Aren't the Pharisees the ones who opposed Jesus? Aren't they ones who followed him around trying to trap him in any chance they got? Weren't they the ones who placed an integral part in having Jesus crucified? So how are these guys now followers of the one they so adamantly opposed? It wasn't because of Jesus' sayings. It wasn't because they read it in the Bible. It wasn't because something they heard and read. It was because of something they experienced. Jesus was dead, is now alive, the tomb is empty, the body missing, and they realized they were wrong. 
they finally got it. And so they started leaving Judaism and embracing Christianity. They got it. But having gotten it did not release them from the baggage that they carried. The Pharisees were meticulously law keepers. The Pharisees at heart were bad guys and trying to make sure everybody towed the line. They were the ones that would come after you. They really were religious guys trying their hardest to please God, but they didn't keep their focus on God. They kept it on rules and regulations placed upon God's Word. Their view was not that you needed to follow the Mosaic Law before you became saviors. Their view was that you got saved by following the Mosaic Law. You see, there's a big difference. They were the mix and match Christians. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Moses, and let's put it together, and now we have the right. Now, even though the leaders of this church are going to deal with this issue, the true matter is we still have a lot of people today who are living as Pharisees in their faith. They want to press upon other people their own traditions, their own mandates as requirements for salvation, or requirements because of salvation. These are true statements. They're not true statements. These are statements I have heard people say. You have to quit smoking. You have to quit cussing. You have to drink, quit drinking before you can become a Christian. And fill in the blank there of all these other things. That is false. That's a lie. If you have to stop sinning before you can come to Christ, none of us can come to Christ. You can't just stop sinning. Now, should we work to quit sinning? Absolutely. But if you could do it on your own, why do you need Jesus? I need Jesus to overcome sin because I am weak. And this statement is saying you have to become perfect before you can accept Christ. I've also heard people say this. Once you're a Christian, it is expected that you dress nicer, volunteer for nursery, use King James Version only, and all these other things. You know what those are? Lies. They are extra baggage put onto people. They're basically saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to look like me. Because I am the pinnacle of Christianity. That, that's what that legalistic baggage is. We don't want to say that. But it is the truth. Look how they handled this, uh, starting in verse 6. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. They came together for the purpose of hearing Paul and Barnabas, the others, the others speak, and then they came to fix this. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as, fo as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. He's giving a testimony of it. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believed we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace the Lord Jesus. 
This right here is a wonderful sermon, just this section. What Peter is saying, we need to become more like these Gentiles in their faith than them becoming like us. Did you catch that? He said, hey, Jewish Christians, we need to be more Gentile. There's no distinction between us and them in God's eyes. We have those distinctions. And in case you don't remember, Jewish believers, we couldn't even keep the law that you guys are wanting to put on them. Our ancestors failed at this. So why are we trying to make them fail? And after that, James, the brother of Jesus. Now, who's James? He is the half-brother, Mary's son, born after Jesus sometime. A person who denied Jesus as the Messiah and actually wanted to get him to quit talking, now is one of the elders at the church here. The brother of Jesus stands up, tells the group that from scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that the law existed was to build a foundation for something new. And then he says this in verse 19, and so my judgment, what is that word? My judgment, my decision, my proclamation, this is proof that James, the once denier of his own brother Jesus as the Messiah, now has a commanding authority in this church because he is proclaiming. He's probably like the, the chairman of the elders there. He's the one who's saying, this is what I think we need to do. My judgment is we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This verse, this verse right here, should be the verse that guides all of us who claim to be Christian. We need to stop trying to get people to act a certain way before they believe a certain way. Quit putting things in front of them. Quit trying to stump, uh, get them to stop stumping. Look, Vance Harbor as uh, a country preacher. He was very quick wit. He put it this way. We need to stop trying to get people starched and ironed before they've been washed. You don't iron clothing before you put it in the washer. Why are we trying to put discipleship regulations on people who's not a disciple? James continued to verse 20. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Okay, I just got confused here. He said, let's not put extra things on them. Let's put these on them. Wait a minute. Is, is he kind of contradicting himself? Is he cherry-picking different things? I was at a church once, and it was one that my grandpa was an elder at, and they would not let you um, celebrate Christmas in church. You couldn't sing songs, Christmas songs, because it's a pagan holiday. Was Christmas born out of a pagan holiday? Yes. So was our Easter celebration with eggs and all that stuff. It was born out of sin. Can God redeem it and use it for something good? If I don't believe he can use a pagan day and turn it into something great, then there's no way he can take somebody who was born pagan and redeem him into something good. Now, we've got to let go of the, the junk stuff of that. But this church said, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't do this. And then I found out all those elders had Christmas trees and stuff in their own home. It almost sounded like they're cherry-picking, like those elders were picking this and this and this. 
You don't have to follow this one, but here's what you do. James, I, I, he's not doing that. He is not uh, picking this law and avoiding that one and forgetting others. If he was doing that, there would be a lot better laws he could have chosen. He could have said, let's make it easy and just tell them to quit stealing. Um, Thou shalt not murder. Do not commit adultery. He's not handpicking and choosing here. In fact, he is not telling the Gentiles to follow Jewish laws at all. Instead, he's saying, here's some things to consider to keep peace in your church. That's what these commands are. Look, verse 21. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. In other words, he's saying, look, these Gentiles who are struggling and trying to grow in the faith, we need to quit having the Jews make it harder for them. But... If you Gentile Christians just practice these, it'll help bridge a gap back. They need to quit tearing down bridges, but it'd be great if you could help build a bridge for connection. Because there are Jewish believers in those churches. Don't live in a way that's insensitive to them. This has nothing to do with following the law or even some of the laws. It has everything to do with Christian love. There, there's a guy here in our church. Um, he had the silliest things on the wall. There was this big poster thing that he put these little cards that had Pokemon things on them. And he filled these two poster things and hung them on the wall in his office. And I had to walk by them every day. I'm not going to tell you our associate minister's name. These silly Pokemon cards. And I looked at it and was like, and I teased him about it a few times. I also tried to find some to give to him to increase his collection. Did I go up and say, those are demons, quit worshiping them. Those are heathens. No, I actually tried to connect with him on them. My daughter used to watch that when she was little, just like you. Now grow up. No, I didn't say. But we build bridges with things that, yeah, that's not my thing. Pokemon's not my thing. I, I don't care. I, 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 I won't go into that. Um, and what, what James is saying here is don't do things that's going to obviously push people, bring in baggage. If I set up a Pokemon and started stabbing it with knives in front of him, that, that'd be kind of violent and negative. So we need, <laughs> and demented also. This statement that James is saying here is to promote Christian unity and focus not on us, but back on Christ. His statement on sexual immorality is not an excerpt from the law, but it is keeping what Paul has already taught all of them. Uh, in the Gentile world, they used to use people for their own personal pleasure. There were several civil rules, but in the Roman and Greek religion, there was no moral rules. There was no morality there. And Christians changed that. The reason we abstain from sexual immorality is not because of one of the Ten Commandments. That should not be the reason we abstain from it. We abstain from it because our bodies are the holy temple for God's spirit, God's presence. 
And so this is God's temple. This is God's temple. This one is God's temple. We are each God's temple. And so we abstain, not because of my holiness, but because he is holy and I want to honor him that way. It's not a rule. It's a relationship with him. And that's what these Jewish people had forgotten and these Gentiles had no idea about. And they were coming together on that. James is talking about unity in the church, not conformality. Conforming to the certain Old Testament laws. There is to be one church, not two. One body of believers, not a Gentile and a Jewish one. So if you just... Hear me on this. If you have left the faith or are considering leaving the faith because of someone in the church who says these different things, they're just rule keepers, like these Pharisees here, like you have to live by all these rules, all these commands, and they impose them on you in the name of Christ, realize that you may have left or considered leaving, struggling with the faith for the wrong reasons because they are stumbling blocks and they are sinning. And I'm sorry that happened to you. If you are a Jesus follower, maybe it's time to we step back and got it right. Maybe it's time we start following the advice of James. I mean, look at this again. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. That instead of expecting them to move in our direction, we started moving in theirs. And the best example of this is Jesus himself. Jesus didn't stay up in heaven to say, keep trying, get up here. He didn't say, hey, follow these so you can get up here. What did Jesus do? He came in our direction. He came down to us, and he walked back to us and said, now let me show you how to get to heaven. Do we do this? Do we work to make it easier to come to Christ, or do we put baggage on people that hinders them? Do we try to make them look like us? As I've said many times, I was taught it's a sin not to dress up on a Sunday morning. So I specifically wore blue jeans again today. (laughs) Because you know what? It's not in the Bible. I was told if you do not wear a tie when preaching, you are sinning against God. And so the last time I was told that, I I came up with this phrase, and I've used it for 15 years now at least. Book, chapter, verse. Show me the book, chapter, and verse. If it's in there, I'm not arguing. Let's do it. If it's not in there, okay. Now, I'm not going to wear some ratty old t-shirt. Dustin looks good today. Okay. Just, I'm not going to wear stuff that looks bad because I also don't want to offend you guys as much. Just don't. So I, I try to look adequate. Okay, to honor Christ and to be at peace with you. Which is it? Isn't that what Jesus wants us to do? Instead of putting these rules and regulations, look what happened in verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders came together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and the elders, your brothers. 
They're sending this to Gentiles, remember? So calling them brothers is incredible. Your brothers in Jerusalem, is it, it is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, Sicilia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating um, food offered to idols, from consuming blood or meat strangled of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called the general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. First, can you back up the screen a little bit to verse 28? For it seemed good to who? The Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Do these words tell you anything? They tell me that these leaders were willing to be led by God's Spirit, not their thinking, not their traditions, not their wants. Instead, they're going to follow the Holy Spirit. Church leaders, this is why it's so important to pick the proper elders. Church leaders must always follow God's Spirit. Now, ultimately, we all should be following listening to the Lord in His Word. We should be listening to the Spirit of God who has given us these scriptures. If we follow them, we're going to have a better life. If we follow the right elders, leaders in our life, we're going to make better decisions of life. As someone has said, it's always right to go by the Word, meaning the Bible. If we follow the Bible, if we are following the Bible or God's leading, we're going to be better off than anyone else. Is, is that true? If we choose to follow God's word in everything that it says, not to gain salvation, but because he's given me salvation. I choose to follow his word because he has said it and I want to honor him. Isn't our life going to be better reflected in him? Isn't the world going to take notice? You know, they don't say certain things when they get mad. They don't act certain way. Look how they treat one another. And this is definitely true for all church leaders. If we who lead the church, preachers, elders, would listen more closely to God's spirit as he leads in scripture, we're going to have better churches that are led by better men. However, if we get self-centered thinking we know better than God in the Bible, then that's when we mess things up. I heard an elder say this to me as we were debating something in the church. He said, I am the board. Do you think that leader had the whole church in his interest? His interest was power, control. It always pays to listen to God, whether you're a church leader or otherwise. The smartest people in the world are those who pay attention to God and his word. And the way to handle disputes in the church, because we are going to have disputes. We are going to have times where we don't really like each other at times. And do you know why? Because you all are not as good as me. And I'm not as good as you in certain areas. 
we're going to have different likes and things that are not scriptural things. We're going to offend people at times. We're going to get upset. But when we come together and say, God, you fix this. What does your word say on this? We lay it down. If it becomes a big divisive thing and say, elders, find God, seek his word, seek his wisdom, and you tell us what to do for the sake of unity and the gospel. You know what's going to happen? We're going to have to build two more churches. Because God's going to fill this place. There's enough baggage in this world to drag us down. And we need to release the baggage of legalism and trust only what God has said. Only what God has said. I've heard so many people try to quote scripture and it's been twisted. Well, that's what this person taught me. That's not what scripture actually says. The famous one that I love to use, spare the rod... That is a lie. That is not what Scripture says. Scripture does not say spoil. He who spares the rod hates his child. That's what Scripture actually says. And I love my kids. So I didn't spare that rod. We've got to quit taking the truth or the the messages of the people as truth and go to Scripture and actually look it up. Well, I was taught this. Where does it find it in the Bible? You find it. The elders are holding me accountable to making sure I teach and preach only the Bible, just as much as you should. But if I preach it and say, this is what's in the Bible, you have a responsibility to say, let me check that book, chapter, and verse. Because we are in this together. We need to hold this up so that way when these divisive things in the world try to come in, we can stand here together. We can go to the Word together. We can let go of the baggage of this world. And only pick up the one thing we need, which is the cross. Are you willing to do that? We're tired of seeing people turn away from the church because they're not good enough. Tired of people turning away from the message of Christ because they were just told they could never measure up. Let me tell you right now, I can never, never measure up to Christ. I am not good enough. He didn't say be good enough. He said, come as you are. Let me fill you. Let me change you. That's what the church is. A bunch of messed up people who are trying to live together for him. So let's take away the baggage. If you've been hurt by the church, by people before... I'm sorry. I'm so sorry somebody used the church, they used scripture, they used something as a weapon that was not meant to be. And I'd love to help you walk with you through that. If you've never given your life to Christ, and you've been carrying all this baggage of, well, I've got to fix this, I've got to fix this, I've got to do this right. Let me tell you, the only, only thing you need in your hands are the hands of Christ. Let go of all that, will you come to him? We're going to go again to a time of worship. And as we do this, really think through our, your life. What baggages are you trying to hold on to be a better person, a better mom, better dad, better whatever? Is it time to just let them go and say, God, you're the only thing I need. So as we sing, thank him for that. Let's honor him. Let's praise him. 
Will you stand? And will you worship him? Thank <laughs> you.